Welcome to Foreman of Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy, I, I, I made a list, right? <laughs> you made a quite a, a good list, of, or a big list, I guess I should say. And then I know you've been checking it and adding to it and trying to make it difficult. <laughs> but w- over time, I've accumulated a lot of questions people have asked, whether very frequently um, or constantly, via the situation in a restaurant or in a retail store or email or online or even in social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, now that you're trying, on social tr- oh yeah, media. I'm trying to be modern. Which is a little okay. horrifying, it's, Tony. Yeah, you're telling me. I know. I saw one of your posts the other day, and I'm like, oh, my God, Tony's entered the... I think it was a dead octopus. <laughs> I know. I'm Probably. Like, but was, regar- regardless of this uh, right. you tangent... Get a, you get a lot of wine questions. We get a lot of wine questions. I get sure. a tremendous number of wine questions. Mm-hmm. And then there over are a time, lot of questions to be asked about wine. After, That's the after, thing. After a couple of decades, you find It's a big, scary that world. Mm-hmm. It's, but it's it's not scary. It's fun stuff to learn no, about. No, it is fun. Sure. And it's fun to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, after a while, you get an accumulation of other fr- frequent questions. Okay. So I thought it might yep. be helpful to... So we're going to just theme today on frequent questions about wine. And I'm and going to ask them. And hopefully it'll help a few folks. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm sure that you'll give them their own edge. I'm sure I have a lot of edge. All right. So, anyway. uh-huh. so the first one is when to drink a wine and when will it peak? Okay, people will always ask this kind of thing. They're, well, I bought this case of such and such, or can I drink this yet? Which, genuinely, I think that's one of my favorite things that people will ask. Mm-hmm. Can I drink this yet? Because, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're excited. They're they want to find out what's ready going to go. on. And I'll often tell people, if you intend to age a wine, you, please buy it, a, at least a couple of bottles of it, if not. A, you know, it, it may be ridiculous to tell everyone like I used to, well, you just buy a case. And you just, you know, mm-hmm. once a year you pull a bottle and then... And not that changes. many things that don't start to drink within 12 years. Although you would feel kind of like, an, usually that the first bottle that you open gives you some idea of the evolution of the wine. Okay. And then how do you so, decide when it will peak? When to drink it. There the are two regions that definitely, historically, you know that age better and slower than a lot of other areas. Uh, Bordeaux and Rioja. Burgundy, it really depends upon the appellation. Uh, a lot of other places in Europe and a lot of other places in winemaking, it's it's much less predictable than in some of those areas uh, that I first mentioned. Uh, the Rhone Valley, it's very dependent on Appalachian and vintage, for sure, and the quality of the site. Um, that, that honestly, you need to ask. You can ask a specific question to someone else, but when to drink it is when it tastes good to you. If you love it as a young wine, you drink it as a young wine, you're going to have no regrets. Right. I just think people are, I mean, I know from my own experience, having a cellar, I'm like, uh, well, should I should I drink it now or am I drinking it where it's too immature? You know, am I blowing it by opening this bottle? Well, don't, no one's going to judge you about it. That's, well, true. If they judge you, yeah, well, they're kind I guess of being we, a jerk. Yeah, it's an investment. So I guess. Now, people, you, people think there's a lot of judgment around wine. I, I know some stuff about wine and I can think of no one that, if you, if you love wine X and you want to drink it and it makes you happy, do it. Then you're a okay. knucklehead to so not good. drink it. That's good. All right, I um, like that. I mean, that's the, that's the truth. When will something peak is a different question. Okay. You know, when to drink it, it, when will it peak? That's a little more of an academic question, and depends upon the vintage and all that sort of stuff. And you may need someone who has a lot more tasting experience than you have to answer the, help you answer that correctly. But the fun part is finding out when it will peak. 
Sure. That's why you need more than a bottle or two to, to figure that out. It is super fun to see how wine ages over time, just to see how it changes. If you have enough, you know, palate memory and, you know, yeah. you can always make notes if, if you really are serious about it, too. <clears throat> Absolutely. One of the young sommeliers that has worked with me for a while now, yesterday, was telling a story about how he had tasted wine with me when we bought it, uh, when, we're, when we're choosing wines to, to buy for the seller. And something I was like, this is going to be fantastic. Five, six, seven years. It's going to have a lot of expression. You'll see medium-bodied, long, fine. It's a Chateau du Fort Vivenne from uh, Margot, mm-hmm. 2010. Great okay. year. Yeah. And I knew it would start to show relatively quickly for Bordeaux in six years, but not immediately. And it would need to, to unpack a little bit of the, uh, the, the sort of the, you know, the, the, the little bit of rough tannin that was there as a young wine. And he said he pulled a cork the other night. We just we just we waited a couple of years to list it. We listed it. He pulled a cork, and he was just he's like I'm shaking my head because you knew and I was like we bought that wine. I'm like ah this is this is terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know he he kind of kept his mouth shut about it, and I you know, so he was telling me he was telling me a story on himself. Mm-hmm. And I was like well you can say what you think it's okay right but Good. you also it, you know but that's an academic question you could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. Well, so. and also when it peaks, what 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 happens? It just falls off the edge. The, well, you mean after it peaks? Yeah. What? Yes. It it fades. It okay. Fa- you know, the, you have a period of time where a wine has primary flavors. Well, the primary flavor of wine is flavors of fruit. It's made from fruit. If it doesn't taste like fruit somehow as a young wine, they screwed it up. When it evolves, it will have primary flavors and secondary flavors and aromas that are not directly a fruit. And that's that evolutionary expression, you know, that it's a little bit like a, like a sunburst. And like, a, as, as you know, it's really, really bright when you're looking at the sun. As the sun sets, you know, you, you have that fade of light. Mm-hmm. And in that fade, you have all kinds of more expression. And that same kind of expression is what happens with wine as it goes over time. It's just not something that you see. It's something that you will taste. You, you may see it a little bit in the glass, if you have unbelievable eyesight. <laughs> but but mostly it's something that happens aromatically and something that happens on your palate. Okay. Which is mostly aromatic anyway. That's good. Okay. Tony, can you tell us a basic guideline for aging for, you know, in ca- categories of white wine, red wine, champagne? Sure. Well, champagne and other sparkling. Okay. That's um, begin with, with whites. 98% of white wines are meant to be consumed as young wines. Okay. They should be bright, mm-hmm. fresh. You serve them cool. You know that's that that's what it's for. So it's if it's uh, what, uh, the more robust they become, or the more tightly wound the structure, the more they can age. Uh, whites that age the the longest, most successfully, honestly, are great rieslings, hmm. uh, dry and sweet. Why is that? Uh, because of the acidity that's there and the relative. The, the balance between the acidity of the alcohol and the phenolic material is very particular. Okay. And that's part of what makes Bordeaux and Rioja age so well, because uh, usually the alcohols are not crazy high, but the structural elements, the different types of acidity, are high. Um, and and th- there's a particular balance between those things and the amount of phenolic material that can sort of be unpacked over time. That's sort of, that's sort of sunburst effect. That, that, that light will last longer, let's say. Uh, but most whites, pretty darn quickly. There are a few whites, whether it's uh, from white burgundy or, say, Vouvray. Uh, whites mostly on the northern edges, like a lot of Riesling is grown. 
uh, of where you can grow wine. Those are often things that, because of their acidity, will last a little bit longer and get into secondary aromas and flavors. But almost all whites you want to consume right away. Almost all reds you want to consume right away. Probably 90, 95% of reds. The, the, the more robustly structured, age-worthy, age-worthy wines from Italy, France, Spain, um, some California, Oregon, absolutely, and Washington State, and South America, uh, Chile and Argentina. And those are things that, that most things with big structure will, will certainly last five, six years if they're kept in decent conditions. But there are things that certainly, you know, I tasted a 45-year-old wine yesterday that I know has another 30 years mm, that's to, to live with no difficulty mm-hmm. uh, from Rioja. And that's, you know, that that happens, but that's that's relatively rare. That's sort of why I said when something tastes good, drink it. Okay, that's good. <laughs> you know, that's, that's even my own cellar, when something, like, as soon as something, I'm like, whoa, I love this expression, I just start drinking it. If it's, if it, I'm not going to regret that it's gone and I drank it, it was all delicious. Get it, I get it. That's good. I'm not burdened by that kind of guilt. <laughs> um, let's talk about Cellaring. So, so some of the questions: What is proper cellar temperature for storage? Fifty-five degrees or so, fifty-five, fifty-seven. Okay. Humidity is also important. If the conditions are too dry, you end up with uh, drier corks, and then you'll end up with oxygen potentially getting into bottles, and that will ruin things too. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to have things. It, if it's dry as a bone in fifty-five. That that can be a little bit dangerous too. So what 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 uh, humidity level? In a, per, in a perfect world, it's eighty percent. Once you go past wow. eighty, once you go, yeah, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. There's a reason you pull wines out of these crazy old European basements and caves, you know, that have the like the mold on the walls and the there's almost a stream running in the basement, you know, and <laughs> mm-hmm. and the things are in great condition. It's cool and it's damp, and yeah, so that's serious humidity. Yeah. Um, are whites and reds cellared at different temperatures? Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, whites can be kept cooler for longer. Um, th- there's not. I think once you go down below fifty for on a consistent basis in the cellar, uh, th- then you start to have. I think it does start to change some things uh, chemically in some of the wines mm-hmm. over a series of years. Okay. But not gigantically. How cold is too cold? Let's say let's say below fifty for yeah, okay. a period of five years. Okay. And. Um, do do you need to store in temperature control? That's if you want it to hold up. There you go. Do right. you need to store, um, you know, milk in the fridge? Of course. Well, if you're going to drink it all today, probably doesn't matter too much. You know, connected to that is of course serving temperature. I mean, do you want room temperature milk? Right. It's funny, and and wine being a product of fruit, it's nice to have it where it's a little cool. There are a couple of reasons. One, this is fruit with alcohol. So the alcohol is going to make the nose a little bit hot. And and if you're serving it somewhere near our room temperature, usually around 70 degrees or so in, in modern world, not in castle world, hmm. you know, if we're in our tweeds and it's 50, 57 degrees in our castle, mm-hmm. um, then the wine at room temperature that would be all right. is going to be pretty nice. Okay. Um, the, and, and most wines, when you bring them, if you bring them up from a cellar out of condition and you pour them in a glass, they're waking up in the glass and they're rising slightly in temperature towards that room temperature. And there's an evolution of the oxygen being involved in the wine and the temperature rising slightly. And a lot of that evolution really gives you the best expression of the aromatics of the wine. 
And the fact that it's a little bit fresh on your palate, a little bit cooler than, than the exact room temperature, will mean you'll notice the alcohol a little bit less, and you'll notice the fruit flavors and expressions a little bit more. So it's, I think it's nice. People will say, well, you serve, you know, you serve it whites cold, like refrigerator cold, and reds, that's 70 degrees in the room. And I think that's often what we will do in the U.S. or the conditions that we're sort of used to. And I'll tell people, use like a, a 20 to 30 minute rule. Take your whites out of the fridge 20 minutes before you want to serve them. And if your red is just sitting out on the counter because you just got it at the store because you bought it for dinner tonight, put it in the fridge for 20 minutes before you serve it. Okay, that's good. And just drop that temperature a little bit. You're going to like the wine better, both the white and the red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've really gotten used to our, our cellar temperatures. You know, if, if, if it's not at a red in particular, if it's not at that temperature, I've just, I just find it very hard to drink. A, a warm glass of, of red wine. It's not pretty. Well, you, you just notice the alcohol more and the fruit less, and that's kind of... Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that, that is meant to be the point. So are there signs in the wine that the wine has been stored incorrectly, too hot, too cold, whatever, or the cork got too well, dry? If, you, if you're going to buy it in a retail store, let's say, or if you see a wine being served to you in a restaurant, you, if there is seepage up around the mm-hmm. capsule, mm-hmm. the seal around the top, you know, or you see the cork pushed out a little bit, it's gone through significant rapid temperature change. Oh, wow. And it's actually lost a little bit of wine. It's kind of like, it looks like the syrupy stuff right, right. up around the capsule. Don't touch that. Okay. Or if you do, just do it very carefully, let's say. Um, and it, and you may see, like, the color will fade. If something's stored incorrectly, the color will have faded. If it's a young wine, it should have pretty intense color and primary color, meaning it has that very red. Uh, it's funny. We call it red wine. No, no red wines are red. They can be very purple or very sort of magenta or very sort of garnet. You know, that they can have a brilliance. to They should have brilliance to their color. If that brilliance is dropped and it's very young wine, that, Something's up. Yeah, something, something's well, up. And the nose, I mean, the matterization is where wine is cooked, that you will get cooked aromas and flavors in some of those wines. Whites show it more often, more quickly than reds do. Okay. And what if direct sunlight hits a bottle of wine? It explodes. No. It, oh, my Direct God. sunlight does not make a bottle of wine explode. <laughs> um, sorry. I just, I, I was waiting for that question. Um if if direct sunlight is hitting a bottle of wine for a long period of time, a couple of things happen. It raises the temperature right. higher than the temperature in the room because mm-hmm. the glass will refract it mm-hmm. um, and slowly, gently cooks that product, yeah. which you don't want if mm-hmm. you want the wine to taste good. Mm-hmm. If you want to taste wine fla- cooked <laughs> wine flavor, it's a great place to put your wine. Um, but a lot of light, especially direct sunlight on wine for any period of time is a negative factor. Highly damaging. Can be. Yeah, okay. And no, no sunblock will assist. Well, I, I'm in a weird situation with my home cellar that I actually don't have a basement. So you need some kind of wine fridge. You need some kind of a... And th- in those, you have to watch how dry wine is after a while. That's the one thing you kind of like when you go to investigate. You have to see not just can you keep it at temperature. I mean, you can go to like one of the, the big home improvement stores and get a fridge for a couple hundred bucks. It'll hold 50, 60 bottles of things that you really want to take care of. That's not a bad solution for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Well, when we come back on Former Wolf on Food and Wine, it's common wine questions today. All of that and more on WYPR.
Welcome back to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. Mm, this is fun. Talking. I'm, I'm glad that you think this is fun. <laughs> I get these questions all the time. Today's topic is, is common wine questions. Trying to solve your problems before you realize that you need help. Okay, so here's a good one. Um, I have an old bottle. What is it worth? Uh, it's worthless. <laughs> if no one buys it. It's priceless if it has a memory attached to it. You know, that's right. kind of a... Right. Uh, those are questions I get all the time. Well, I went down, you know, my uh, so-and-so passed away, and I went into their house, and, and I found these old bottles. And so what are they like? Maybe have a dinner party and, like, see if any of them are mm-hmm. any good. Or if it's one, like, you found eight cases of 1976 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. Right. Then you can call one of the auction houses, one of the, one of the you know, and they'll charge you 20% to sell it on the open market. And they'll, you'll send it to auction. You'll pay for shipping. You'll pay for insurance, and you'll pay these guys a twenty percent commission that they will also charge to the persons buying the wine. Wow, mm. uh, interesting. Didn't know that. So, yeah, they. So just drink it. There's a certain amount of like if it has to be a significant transaction or really part of what you do as a person. I think for mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. if you if you if it's a one off thing, do something interesting with the wine. Yeah. I mean, frankly, I think that's... Have a party. Celebrate. I, that's maybe celebrate, whether it's from this person or... Yeah, you, celebrate you put this that away person's or, life like, or... You know, and maybe it's something that has no value. Find something that it has value to and pass it along to them. I think that's one of the... Okay. You know, th- there's a little bit of a... There's a piece of human legacy and, and, and personal story and all those bottles of wine in somebody's cellar. Mm-hmm. You know, why not get involved in that? That's the that's the coolest stuff in life. That's why it's nice to have wine open in a glass and actually, you know, you and share it. That's... Okay. Here's one of the questions. I want to find this wine I've heard about. How do I find it? Oh, that's people people often ask and one sometimes not know the question not know the name of the wine or they'll show you the label. And one you have to know how to read the label information. You have to find out who produced it. Uh what is there an appellation? Like if it says Barolo on the label, it's from the Barolo appellation. If it says Poyac on the label, it's from Poyac. If it says Napa, Napa Valley, it's from Napa Valley. It's really that, so that that's mm-hmm. important to know. The year is important to know because what you had in Situation X, it may not be the exact same wine that's available to you on the market. Right. The various you know, online ways to search for wine in any any particular market. It's also if you have a relationship with a particular mar- wine merchant or or shop that is near you, you know, they can go find and, it and for and, you. Yeah, they can find it for you. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, if you're having it at somebody's house, it may be impossible to find. But, you know, if you're excited about but, it, but some ask of it is, your local people. And Frankly, an easy skill to build is how to read label information. Okay. You know, so when, how to, you know, let, you need you need usually four pieces of information. Who is the Who produced the wine? Mm-hmm. Where is it from? What's the year? And it's helpful for a lot of the Americans that identify grape varietal first. It's nice to know what it is made from, what grapes it's made from. Right. So any information you can get from the label. And and you can also usually get, uh, if it's an imported wine, uh, imported label. And so you may be able to just contact an importer directly and ask who in your area distributes wine X. And that's helpful. Yeah, that's good. All right. Another question. I am going to a wine region. Who should I visit? That's okay, that's all the time. Sure. And always happy to help with that kind of stuff. Um, I think just as a general plan, it's while it's really cool to visit, you know, the archetypal famous producer, you go to Chateau of the Pop, people want to go to visit Chateau de Bocastel. Mm-hmm. Or they go to uh, to Tuscany and they want to visit Antonori. 
and more power to you. It's awesome to visit those guys. These are big, long, successful businesses that have a marketing machine that are very good at receiving you. I frankly also think it's really cool to go to some familial estate where you, where where everybody is involved in making the wine that's actually in the family, and they're much sort of closer to the ground, and then there is not necessarily a marketing machine. It may, it may not be as smooth in a lot of ways per visit, and it may not be calculated to be impressive, but it will be very personal. And heartfelt. And and. Sometimes you will have a relationship with a person that grows wine in a place that remains a personal relationship for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very interesting to find those kinds of producers. It doesn't mean that all those producers are – the famous guys are famous because the, the wine's pretty good usually. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're, they're either very, very, very good at selling them or they're very, very good at making them or both. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time it's a combination of the two. But some of the little guys, it's it's very interesting. And some of them don't – they don't have ambitions to conquer the world with it. They're just trying to make this you know, wine as, as good or better than their great-grandfather. Mm-hmm. Well, and so. some of them don't accept visits either. No. They're such small houses and Yeah, I, I've always prided time. myself on visiting some of the people that are sort of quote-unquote impossible to visit because mm-hmm. you have to speak the language and they're a little cantankerous and, they have a, and they're fussy and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's it's amazing you know, opportunity. In other words, we get along perfectly. <laughs> So, Tony, in in a restaurant situation, uh, people have asked, you know, is it okay to just ask your waiter um, what to drink with with what you're eating tonight? You know, you know what you want to eat, but you just have no idea what to do with a big wine list. I think it's it's cool when people are excited and want to pair things up. And I think that you would hope that the staff is tuned in and or can get good help, especially in a place of substantial commitment to wine and a cellar and 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 a big list and you know, you, you you would hope that you could get expert advice. A lot of times people don't ask. Of course it's okay to ask. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people will not ask, and they will just kind of grab onto the They'll be reading down the list, and they'll find one thing that's familiar, even about one wine, and they'll hang on to that like it's, you know. A lifeline. Like, yeah, exactly. It's mm-hmm. a total lifeline. Like, I am completely out of my depth, but I don't want to look stupid. Well, you, you're yeah. not supposed to be in that situation to be a wine expert. Right. You're supposed to be in that situation to enjoy yourself. Yeah, and your service supposed you know? to be and a so wine you, expert. And so now you're having stress. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like that, that's, you don't have to be stressed. Mm-hmm. I'm, you're not going to bring me your taxes and have <laughs> me do them well for you. That would be a mistake. <laughs> if you came to me because you needed your ankle operated on, That'd be a big problem. While I'm pretty good with knives, <laughs> that's also a big mistake. However, if you come to me asking, I'm having Osubuco, and you have 600 Italian wines on your list, what do I do about this? And my, my question, essentially, at that point is going to be economic. Right. You know, where, where are you comfortable for me to, to speak? And if you just point into an area or if you're like the kind of person that's comfortable with blurting out I want to spend $42 or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so helpful to the waiter. You know, if you do tell yeah. them where you are, then they yeah. don't have to worry about, oh my gosh, should I suggest this? Well, but people are afraid to do that because they'll think the person's going to kind of look at them like, oh my God, really? You're a $42 wine guy? Really? Mm. I'm disappointed. No, yeah. No. You know, well, it, frankly, the, the person who's supposed to be serving you professionally is not it's not really their position to be disappointed in your Absolutely. economic right. choices. You're making a very positive economic choice in their favor by dining at that table. Absolutely. First and foremost. Uh, 
So I, I just the, all of those weird little social pressures, you should you know feel justified in throwing them out the window. There you go. Okay. And I if like you that. say if you say that, then I would say, well, let's look at Montepulciano Chiano d'Abruzzo. There's no end of you know there's no end of lamb dishes in that region of Italy. Hmm. There are great preparations of Osobuco there. Uh, Montepulciano is a grape that does very well with lamb. It has the, the tannin that you want it to have. It has like a bright spicy fruit to it, and and we'll find one that you really like. That's great. That's what what, what the heck else am I supposed to do? Because <laughs> I can't do your taxes, and I'm going to just chop your angle off. <laughs> oh my gosh! Sorry. Okay. Um, another question: Why does wine give me headaches? Oh well, there are many, many, there are many, many responses to that. It's the sulfites, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it may be. <laughs> it, I'm not going to say it's everyone's drinking habits, but if if wine gives you headaches, you know, have you one? Did you dehydrate yourself? If you drink a lot of wine and you don't drink any water, see, wine is refreshing, right? We talk about that. So sometimes people start drinking wine; it tastes a lot better than water. <laughs> and you stop drinking water, you dehydrate yourself a bit, right? And you have a few more glasses of wine maybe than you would normally have. And your brain and you starts wake up rattling the next day. around. Yeah, and it's like your brain shrinks <laughs> and your skull has grown <laughs> and rattles around like a pea the next day when you wake up. It, well, of course, you have a headache. So um, drink so a that's lot of one, water. Yeah, I will often say to people, drink at least one to one and a half times as much water as wine when you're drinking wine with, with a meal. You, and you and need pace the, yourself. You need hydration. Pace yourself. Right. The accelerating wine drinker is the one that you always have that's, that's a scary fears thing. about. Yeah. Right, right, right. Or the, uh, the wine, the wine drinker that, that pairs <laughs> wine with courses and then, pa- then puts a cocktail between courses. Ooh, oh, yeah, boy. Yeah, those, 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 those are also... That sounds like a terrible headache They can me. be exciting guests to, to <laughs> take care of. But... The, I mean, the, so sulfites don't give you a headache. I think that for some people, sulfites do give a headache. Okay, and there are sulfites in some form in almost all wines, uh, some at higher levels, some sulfur doses at lower levels, and uh, and the the whole thing about well, I was you know that happens to me here, but when I'm in Europe, if I'm in Italy, uh, I get no headaches when I drink wine. Well, maybe the two martinis before dinner that you have here before you have the wine that might affect your headaches. One. Two, um, you may happen to be in a place where, like, you don't have 11 things on your mind when you wake up, you know, or an hour later. I mean, that's, you're on vacation. Yeah. So apparently you're good at vacation because you don't get headaches on vacation. (laughs) All of that being said, there are chemical reasons that, that particular wines will interact in certain people's body chemistries in ways to give them headaches of some sort. I, I know a guest that cannot drink German Rieslings because they get headaches. I know some guests that cannot drink red wines because they get headaches, but whites are fine. Okay. You know, and the, the, the question is about histamines and different chemical compounds, and I'm not going to do all the research or, like, restate all the research that still doesn't know why this happens. But there are a lot of scientific reasons that, that come up with this. Okay. So what wines do I serve to a big party or a big group? That's one that you that you get all the time, and the question really is, well, it's just like any other situation. Well, how much do you like the group? <laughs> <laughs> you can serve great champagne from a Grand Cru site, you know, if you if you're not economically limited and you really want to show off to that group that you have fantastic wine, you want to serve them, and it's a big occasion. In general, people ask that question when it's like, well, wh- where can I purchase something that's going to be? A, how can I purchase something that's going to be a real crowd pleaser? Right. Now, job one is to to have enough of it. Job two is probably not to break the bank, and then job three is really kind of what is everyone going to like. Mm-hmm. 
and it's something that's interesting, satisfying, refreshing. It, usually when it's a big crowd, it's a stand-up thing and not a sit-down thing. It might be a sit-down thing, but you, you know, and, and usually food is not the the uh, you know if it's if it's fifty people like wine for a like a like a cocktail neighborhoody get together thing. Someone wants like bottles of unoaked Sauvignon Blanc from Chile or something that are inexpensive and very refreshing. Uh, someone wants, um, frankly, you know, bottles of Malbec from Argentina that that are that are tasty and not a big piece of money, or young reds from Spain doing that same sort of job with the Cote de Rhone or Primitivo from Puglia, in Italy. Tasty, fruity, fresh, young things that you'll have with uh, whatever snacks kind of come around. Yeah, and then, of course, what food are you serving? So you have to consider yeah, of course. all of these things. Yeah. If, if, it's a, if it's a big meal, it's, it's much easier. If you have a menu, yeah. show someone the menu right? and say, Here's, this is my budget for the event. This is not a big drinking group. And how much do I buy? That's the other question that goes with that. And really, I would plan anywhere from half a bottle to a bottle a person for depending upon the crowd. Half a bottle to a bottle per person? Yeah, on total wine okay. that you purchase. Mm-hmm. So if you have 30 people, most most of the time, two cases of wine, 24 bottles is going to cover it. And then they have to figure out how is it going to skew, white, red, what's the weather, what's the menu. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you literally can kind of calculate Well, and what's stuff. the occasion too, yeah. right? And then when you know what the total is you're willing to spend, then you'll know what's spent per bottle. And There you go. Yeah, easier. Well, it's just nice that there are so many... Good values out there, you there know, are. that you can buy stuff that's really fun to drink and you could buy multiple, you know, you could buy six bottles of this, six bottles of that. So your friends get to, you know, maybe taste things they haven't had before. There's a choice. I, I like the well, idea of that. Now, once well. you open more types of things, that there's a, oh, there's always a favorite and there's always a least favorite. So if you, if you decide for your event for those same 30 people that you want to open six things so that everyone can taste it, you're going to end up buying more of all those things unless you want to run out of the most popular ones because you will. Of course. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So where are the best values coming from anyway? Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, some of the places that I just mentioned. Okay. You know, South America is a lot of good purchases. It is difficult. You're not going to find great values in Bordeaux or Burgundy. I would say that in sparkling wine, uh, Cava or Conca in Spain – you know, consistently, mm-hmm. good place to look. There's an ocean of Prosecco that people seem to want to drink right now. Not that much of it is all that tasty. I'd rather drink the drier stuff from Spain, frankly. Um, but Prosecco, I think, makes people feel slightly fancier to <laughs> say it. So it's a little more complicated to say than Cava. Okay. Or Conca, mm-hmm. which sounds like a dance. <laughs> so what's a good wine glass to use? And, you know, I know you're going to have different situations, so how does that... Well, yeah, I mean, that's funny. One of the things I'll say to some people, like, I love wine X so much, I would just drink it out of a coffee cup. <laughs> Meaning, that e- e- even with even with the, gl- the worst possible situation, you know? Mm-hmm. You know right, yeah. Right? Um, so, the glass is, is nice to have. That's an easy, like, ad quality. or ad, Like, you're going to get the most expression out of whatever the wine is in a nice glass, which doesn't smell like soap. Which right. doesn't smell like your cabinet. Yeah, good point. Which doesn't smell like the box that it just came out of because you're saving them for the nice wines, you know? Mm-hmm. That's often I'll end up, I'll, I'll, if I think someone's getting glasses out of a cabinet because I'm, I'm asking for a fancier wine in a restaurant, I'll just grab that glass and smell it just to see, you know, like, eh, yeah, I'm kind of a jerk, but 
frankly, I'm going to spend X dollars on the wine. I would like to have the wine taste like the wine and not your cabinet. Exactly. Sure. Um, the the brand name is not important. What's important is that it that is that it's that it's clean, that it's clear, so you can actually see the wine nicely. Uh, it doesn't have a film or something on it. Uh, larger, not giant necessarily. It makes it easier to kind of analyze what's going on. And if you have a pretty big bowl anywhere, it, once you get below like 13 ounces or so on a wine glass, there's not that much room to swirl it unless you're a really great micro swirler <laughs> uh, and expose a lot of the surface area of the wine. <laughs> the I don't have those kinds of fine-tuned skills. Yeah, no. the, I need a larger wine glass. Neither does my brother-in-law, as you uh, will remember. Yeah. I do recall. <laughs> he's, he's a very talented man. That's just not his leading talent. <laughs> However, his dry cleaner likes him. Yeah. The um, that you, if you have a little bit larger bowl and you can swirl that wine so that more surface area is exposed to oxygen as you swirl it, and then tip that so you can put your nose in it, you'll get more and more aromatics from the wine. It's it's kind of an easy formula. So as as the host, also don't over pour the glass. Yeah, right? I mean that's yeah. pour a couple of ounces in the in the wine glass. Yeah, 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 and. You know. If if a guest is pouring the, for themselves, the, the, then yeah, the full glass of wine like, it might as well just be a, a mason jar that you're putting it in if you're going to fill it. Right. Well, when we come back on Formula Wolf on food and wine, uh, we'll wrap up with a few more wine questions and then uh, a chef's challenge. All of that and more on Formula Wolf on food and wine on WIPR. Welcome back to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And today we're doing common wine questions. So one of the others, um, how do you know when to decant a wine? Should you decant it? How does that work? Large majority of the time just don't, uh, frankly. The, those big wine glasses we were just talking about in the last segment, mm-hmm. if you're swirling wine around in them, they're going to get air pretty darn quickly. Um, the most urgent reason to decant is if you want to pour, if, if you have wine with a significant deposit, you can see it on the sides of the bottle. And if you handle one nice thing in your cellar, if you keep wines labeled up in your cellar, laying down on their side, when you carry them out of there, if you always keep them in that position, the deposit, whatever is formed, will always be in that same place on, this, on the opposite spine, so it's very predictable where it is. It may be that there's significant deposit, and you can see that in good light. If there's significant deposit and you want to pour the clear wine off of that deposit, then you might decant that. And you can use a candle. Sometimes you can just use good light and, and the right angle mm-hmm. to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's one reason. If something is very, very you know tight, quote-unquote, in other words, not very generous in its expression, and you want it to get more oxygen to wake it, try to wake it up faster, then you, you might decant that also in a young wine. Just to, and it will still probably have a little bit of deposit. To, uh, to brighten it up. And once in a great while, and once in a great, great while, I'll decant a white wine purely for that same reason, that it just needs oxygen faster to, to try to... It's been sleeping harder, <laughs> let's say, in the cellar than some others. And where were we? Were we at Veuve Clicquot when she decanted... Uh, the, the, cham- the champagne. The champagne, which I'd yeah. never seen before. Well, sometimes was... people will do that with uh, sparkling dessert wines 
to take a little bit of the bubbles off because the the bubbles, the effervescence acts like acidity on your palate. It refreshes your palate like acidity can. If you want it to come across sweeter, to actually deliver more of the residual sugar that's actually there, if you decant, you'll lose a lot of the bubbles. If you lose a lot of the bubbles, the wine will read sweeter. If it reads sweeter, it might be nicer with that pastry. That's all. That's interesting. That's cool. Um, okay, here's another question. I love wine X. What do you think of it? That people ask that all the time. Um, I think that they want to tell me about that wine, so I'd like to hear about it because I'm interested in what they think. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. One. Two, I think what they're telling me is... I want to drink a wine like this. Can you help me find other wines like this that I would like? Okay. Or yeah. maybe can you help me discover what it is I like about this so that I can find other wines that I like? And that's really that that's that's how I usually sort of translate that. Okay. And then so what is your favorite wine, Tony? Oh gosh. Um people absolutely that's that is I will get that every day. They'll be reading a list somewhere or you know, wanting to shop or or I'll just get the, you know, you talk about wine. You obviously love it. Blah, you know, what is your favorite? There's no one thing. I mean, what is your favorite day of the year? Don't say your birthday. <laughs> um, you can say, but I mean, think about like, sure. What is your favorite weather? Do you want? Do you want to see the beautiful snowy day? Yes. Do you want to see the you know the the sun at the beach? Yes. Do you want to see like the crisp morning in the forest? Yes. Do you want to? See the sun setting in the mountain, like then see the mist. Yes, I want to. I want to see all of those expressions. Each one makes discovering the next one more interesting. So there's no one thing. In general, the wines that I favor are wines that are really distinct in their expression. That they actually, they don't just tell you a story. They don't just say, "Yeah, we took a ride." Uh, they say, "So I have a 1965 Ferrari 250 GT. <laughs> it's bright green." It's a crazy color. It was a custom paint job in 1966. And it only has that weird three-speed shifter with the, with the notch in it for overdrive that those cars had in one year. And so we were driving it. And this is exactly where we were. And this is exactly what we did. And, you know, and this is what the weather was like. And this is what the day was like. All of those very specific pieces of expression that make something an incredible story, that make something really memorable, that make something have a real personality and a real life and a really complete presence, that's what makes something a wine that you you, you favor or that mm-hmm. may become your favorite wine or at that moment is your favorite wine. On that side, it's often the moment. So now we should do a chef's challenge. We should. We should now, now that I want wine really, really badly. And I want a very specific one. Okay. Right. I want a Cote Rotis, which is not really like a normal daytime thing. Okay, here we go. Ladies first. Sweet potatoes, honey, ricotta, goat's milk, niçoise olives, whole squab, yes, suckle pears, finocchiono, oh gosh, I love that, um, which is a salami from Tuscany, um, escarole, sweet red bell peppers, oh, Tony. Um, yeah. Yuck. Cracked red. <laughs> yuck. <laughs> I don't like bell peppers. Yeah. Um, cracked red pepper. Local celery, local yellow carrots, durum flour, eggs. Okay, so I'm making pasta. So no, you can be making eggs. You can be making no, pancakes. but I am making okay. You're pasta. Making Excuse Sorry. me, sir. Is it my chef my, challenge? My apologies. But yeesh. My apologies. All right, so durum flour and eggs. I'm making pasta, and I would I haven't made a stuffed pasta in a while, so I'm going to use your 
your nasty red um, bell peppers. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to do is I love I'm going to make them good peppers. by I'm going to roast them. By Actually, making someone else eat them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to roast them and uh, peel the skin off. Char them. Actually, I may char them on the grill and peel the skin off. Roast, finish roasting them until they're nice and tender. Chop them kind of roughly. Pull out the pith and the seeds, of course. And I'm also going to mix those with the red pepper, which I love. Um, a little bit of the celery, a little bit of the carrots. And I'm going to make a vegetable filling for the uh, pasta. And there's no cheese on. Oh, yeah, ricotta. So I'm going to use the ricotta for that. And oh, that actually sounds really good. So I'll make a little a little uh, tiny, just a little circle-shaped pasta. Um, ravioli. Little marabinis or... Right, exactly. Annalinis. Yeah, that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to serve it with a little bit of... Um, actually, I'm going to use the escarole too. So I'll wash the escarole and julienne it, lay it down, roll it and julienne it very fine. And um, that I'm going to just barely wilt in the pan. I'm going to assume I have olives. I mean, excuse me, I'm going to assume I have garlic somewhere. And I'll pop a little garlic in that pan with the escarole and then uh, lay that out uh, almost like a bed down through the center of the plate and then lay the raviolis through that little great extra virgin olive oil. And actually, this is a lot of ingredients for me, but the finocchiono, a little julienne of that right down the center too, would be really, really good. So that's my pasta dish. So that's my starter course. Um, I've used almost all of my ingredients. So I have squab and pears olives, honey, and sweet potatoes left. So with the sweet potatoes, I'm going to boil, I'm going to boil them in their jackets. Um, but I'm still, even though I'm going to cook them in with the skin still on, I'm going to put a little spice in the um, water, which, which which would be a little star anise and cinnamon, a little bit of salt, and a little bit of sugar in the water. Cook the potatoes, pull them out, um, remove the skin, and then pass them through a ricer and add a little bit of the honey. And actually, I'm going to reserve a little bit of that ricotta from the ravioli, and I'm going to put that in also with the sweet potatoes. And um, that's gonna, going to go with the squab, which I'll roast until it's really gorgeous and golden and crispy in the oven. Um, squab really likes to be served medium rare, so it's going to be a quick roast. So it needs to be a hot oven, 425 degrees. Um, well seasoned with a little bit of salt and pepper and hopefully maybe I have a little bit of rosemary that I could put in the cavity of the squab to perfume it and actually um, I'm going to roast it and at the end I'm going to add the suckle pears so the pears will actually cook with the squab and then I'll serve it with the sweet potatoes and just make a little reduction sauce from the from the bodies sounds Bones. nice sounds okay. nice right. intrigued by the uh, it's fun when you were talking about the marabini with the sweet peppers uh, going over the escarole, almost kind of wilting that, mm-hmm. is making me think I want to take one of those eggs and poach that, mm. and then crack mm-hmm. that guy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as let that be with a little vinegar. Let that be the sauce. Right. Like, mm. Yeah. That's I like that idea. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Garbanzo beans. Tony has his green glasses on now. Cote, you can see that on the radio. Cote de Boeuf. <laughs> Rosemary, marjoram, Italian parsley, red wine, white wine. Garlic, shallot, onion, celery, veal stock, chanterelles, baguette, uh, little neck clams, Iberico ham, tomato paste, chorizo, and ground pork. Hmm. Let's oh, see. wait. You have a situation. Oh, situation. So you, you, ha- you have a rental house in the southern part of France. Hmm. And that's where you're cooking. And you don't know the kitchen at all. You've uh, never been there before. Great. And it's somewhat limited. Uh, you do have a grill outside. outside. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> somewhat limited. All right. So the job one is going to be roast those chanterelles and get some flavor going on those guys. So 
that's purely a, a long slow in the pan, um, maybe with uh, a little bit of the marjoram that's there and uh, and some garlic, but just long slow roast. Get them, get them to where they're almost crispy. And uh, I will admit that's one place I like to use butter at the very end. You know, like with this, get those to where they're ready to be finished. Chanterelles like butter. Essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the veal stock, uh, I would also want to reduce the heck out of that and get it down to where it was really almost like pasty, gluey. Um, and then cut that with, uh, if there's extra virgin olive oil around, sure. cut that with a little bit of extra virgin olive oil and a little bit of tomato. And, uh, and then the good, the Côte de Bouffe, I'd want to put a, slices in it and uh, season it well. Both that's both both is slivering in some some like rough salt, coarse salt, um, a little bit of the rosemary and the garlic, right into that, and uh, grill that, and then put the top on that guy at, just over the embers, and let it almost kind of smoke in there with the uh, with the garlic and the rosemary, and um, that. I mean, I know I want to serve that as main course last. And make take the uh, the veal stock tomato and uh, olive oil business. I have that so I can brush the slice slice that thin the cut de bouffe the the beef rib uh, slice that thin and brush the slices with just a little bit of that and uh, the crunchy salt and a little bit of raw shallot and parsley, almost like a persillade, mm-hmm. and uh, it would just kind of stick to the to the uh, stock business that that was on there. Uh, so that's the last course. You give me no vegetables, really. Um, I guess, <laughs> gosh, because the garbanzo beans and the clams, I was going to cook garbanzo beans a long time with a little bit of the the tomato paste and the marjoram and the garlic and shallot, onion and celery, um, and make something of like a warm salad with that. But at the end of cooking the garbanzos, I'd want to add the little neck clams let that finish. So you end up with a garbanzo and a little like clam salad. And it's just some of the Iberico ham, sliver that up and toss that, make a simple vinaigrette with uh, some of the Italian parsley and a little bit more of the uh, the shallot and hopefully some old red wine vinegar. And and uh, toss that with the, uh, so you end up with a salad with the garbanzos or chechi or chickpeas, whatever you want to call them, and the little necks. Uh, the chorizo... I have left for it tomorrow. And the ground pork, I also have left for it tomorrow. There's too many proteins for me to play with. And the baguette, grill slices off. I have that with maybe a little more of the Iberico while you're, uh, you're working and you uh, mm-hmm. are drinking some of the white wine. I could eat that right now. It was now. in the south of France. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. the white from Chateau Simon from uh, mm. Dan near Bandol. I love that stuff. And the red from there will be darn good for uh, for that beef with a little brush. So. I think I think I'm there. I got chorizo and ground pork for tomorrow. I don't know what else. I have to go to market and get vegetables. Get some eggplants for that. You could do that. Yep. All right. All right. Well, I think that's all we have time for on Formula Wolf on food and wine. If you'd like to download this program or any other programs, uh, we have podcasts available on the WYPR website, wypr.org. You can just go to the Formula Wolf webpage. You can also always email us questions, whether it's wine questions or any other sort of questions about food, wine, uh, and a bunch of travel on uh, foremanwolf at wypr.org. If you want to follow Chef Cindy Wolf on social media. On Twitter, Chef Cindy Wolf, and on Instagram, Chef Wolf. And strangely, I Instagram Tony now. is now on Instagram. And Yeah, almost, and, and absolutely comically, it's the real Tony Foreman <laughs> on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. 
Have a great Sunday.